AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Deep in the back of your mind, you've always had the feeling that there's something strange about reality. There is. Cyranoid. A death much nanopart. Mechanical. Cyst-hunt evolution. On our award-winning science podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we examine neurological quandaries, cosmic mysteries, evolutionary marvels, and our transhuman future. Golden scale. Geodesic dough. Kleptoparasitism. Sleep paralysis. Join us on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast to explore the weirdest corners of technology, history, philosophy, mythology, and the human mind. Check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com to learn more. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about the legal history of sexual harassment, which is a relatively new phrase compared to how long sexual harassment (laughs) in the workplace has been going on. So you mean a couple of decades versus forever? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I and I feel like, Caroline, half the time when we talk about sexual harassment in the workplace, it's in a joking way because it seems like any kind of sexual harassment training that you have to go through if you have a job is painful, awkward, sometimes downright weird and uncomfortable. Yeah. You weren't there for our last sexual harassment training, were you? No, I was not. I was uh, out of town. Don't tell HR. Yeah, uh, it was horrifying. Like, I think I feel more traumatized by the sexual harassment training that we received uh, than any possible, like, rude comment I've ever received in the workplace. Because of graphic detail? <laughs> Can you say it on the podcast? Um, there were, uh, it was, uh, two brilliant women giving the presentation and one of them used some hand motions and, uh, some terminology that I don't think she realized had pre-existing connotations of a way more sexual nature than she intended. Uh, it was horrifying. So it sounds like the sexual harassment training would have qualified as sexual harassment had it not been training. I think that's the general feeling of the room. Yeah. And it always seems to like 
any videos associated with sexual harassment (laughs) training. They just stopped shooting them after like 1992. I know. Well, they probably all made them after the Anita Hill trial. Yes. (laughs) Which we have a whole episode about Anita Hill and the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing right after this. Um, And speaking of which, I mean, this term sexual harassment came about in the 70s, but it wasn't until that 1991 Anita Hill testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee that it really permeated our society. Yeah, because it took something apparently that large and that big of a deal to get people to be like, oh, is what I've been doing wrong or, oh, is what that person's been doing wrong? Should I report it? Because back in the 70s, in 1974, to be precise, uh, then Cornell instructor Lynn Farley coined the term. It came out of this consciousness raising session that she was holding as part of her class on women and work. And she ended up using it publicly outside of her class for the first time in 1975. And this caught the attention of The New York Times. Yeah, I mean, and this whole episode really goes to show how powerful our language is once you... Once we're able to name things, how that can really speed up progress in terms of achieving justice. Um, now, if we want to know what sexual harassment is precisely, apparently sometimes it includes awkward sexual harassment training <laughs> from w- women using uh, gesticulations, yeah. PG-13 gesticulations. For sure, for sure. Uh, now, according to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, sexual harassment equals, quote, unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, and other verbal or physical harassment of a sexual nature. But it is worth noting that with these legal criteria, maybe a one-off incident might not fit as sexual harassment. It has to be so frequent and severe that it contributes to what's called a hostile or offensive work environment or when it results in an adverse employment decision like the victim being fired or demoted. But, I mean, as we'll talk about more in this episode, sexual harassment is so much more than just making maybe... (laughs) offensive gestures or uh, an offensive comment or two. It's really more of a way to keep women in their place, especially when they are in those more male-dominated roles. It's more about power. It's not about lust. These are the same conversations that we have when we talk about rape and sexual assault because one could argue successfully that sexual harassment is really part of rape culture. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that power aspect is important to centralize in how we talk about sexual harassment because anyone can be sexually harassed and anyone, regardless of gender, can be the harasser. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of times, while it does happen between coworkers, there does seem to be absolutely that power dynamic involved. And while reported incidents of it have lessened because we are being trained as to what is and is not okay in the workplace. And I think because hopefully maybe gender politics and awareness of rape culture are improving, uh, but it still happens all the time. Yeah. So in 1992, not coincidentally on the heels of Anita Hill's testimony, uh, 85% of Americans said that they considered sexual harassment to be a persistent 
problem. And 32% of women said that they had experienced it. When you fast forward to late 2011, that percentage had dropped to 24%. But you also have to take into account 10% of men said that they had experienced it and 25% worried about false accusations. And that's coming from an ABC News poll. Um, but, you know, Kristen, you said it happens all the time, but reported incidents have lessened. There was a Cosmo survey that we looked at, too, that said 71 percent of women in their survey that they talked to just didn't report it. And there were a lot of reasons uh, among people who'd experienced it but didn't report it. Four out of 10 were either concerned about the consequences of making a report or they didn't think it would do any good. And I think because sexual harassment and reporting sexual harassment is often lumped in with the whole rhetoric of, quote unquote, political correctness, um, there is probably a fear that you won't even be believed mm-hmm. because I've also heard oftentimes, you know, we have the jokes about sexual harassment in the workplace, but then also so many complaints from men in particular, you know, that 25 percent in that survey who worried about false accusations. But these guys who will will sometimes be like, oh, well, I don't want to do that. She'll say it's sexual harassment and really making light of what is a serious issue and especially a serious issue for LGBTQ employees. Um, there was a piece over at the Center for American Progress, which cited data from UCLA's Williams Institute, which found that 15 to 43% of gay and trans workers have experienced some form of discrimination on the job, and that includes sexual harassment. And that same Cosmo survey that I talked about a minute ago from February of 2015 found that one in three respondents had experienced sexual harassment in the workplace, but there's an interesting division. So 81% experienced verbal sexual harassment. 44% reported unwanted touching and sexual advances. But 25%, and this could be like an age difference thing and or a generational thing, I'm wondering, 25% reported being sexually harassed via lewd texts, g-chats, and emails, which... I want to be like, are you stupid? Because that is so easy to be like, hello, HR, look at these emails and texts. So are you encouraging sexual harassers to cover their tracks? <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> don't get smarter about it. No, don't. So, yeah. <laughs> Maybe leaving the paper trail is a good thing. Well, that's true. But I mean, come on. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's. But I think that that speaks to the element of a lot of people would say, oh, I didn't know what I was doing with sexual harassment or I would never have thought I'm not someone who sexually harasses people. I would never do that. Not realizing that, oh, no, even just a hint of, you know, whatever it was you said could be construed as harassment. Yeah. And that privileged element of assuming that your sexual come on or the porn link that you just G chatted would be welcome. And in the same way that street harassers say, oh, but it's just a compliment. I bet in in some of these people's minds, like, hey, it's just a compliment. She looks so good. Why would I not want to compliment her boobs? Well, I think, yeah, there's actually this uh, study along these lines. And Kristen, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like it was in the 80s or 90s. But uh, men and women were presented with this scenario and they were told to judge at what point sexual harassment entered the scenario. So basically, the hypothetical scenario was that a woman was supposed to go to lunch with a man to present a 
presentation <laughs> of her work. And at lunch, he says, you know what? Screw that. Let's just talk about your personal life. And he asks her all of these invasive questions. Uh, he goes on to ask her to lunch a few more times and then dinner and then drinks. And at drinks, he fondles her. And so they ask the men and the women, at what point did sexual harassment enter into this? Almost to a person, the women said, Basically, when he said, no, thanks, I don't want to hear your presentation. Let's talk about your personal life. And by far, the majority of the men said, oh, when he fondled her. There seems to be a massive disconnect. And I'm hoping that uh, that is narrowing. But as we see through lewd text, G-chats and emails being such a thing, clearly not everyone has picked up on the need to be a little more sensitive and aware. Well, that reminds me, Caroline, of a job interview that I had. And thankfully, it was a phone interview um, where we went through all the questions, had developed a nice rapport. And then at the end of the conversation, this guy asks me what I'm doing for the weekend. Like, what are you doing on Saturday? And it caught me completely off guard because my Saturday plans would have absolutely nothing to do with my qualifications for this job. Yeah. And afterward, I told myself maybe it was just to get a sense of whether I'd fit into the company culture. But as soon as I mentioned that, and this was true, that my uh, soon-to-be in-laws were coming over for brunch, the interview quickly ended and I never got a call back. And I don't know that that was, again, that could have been just a question, you know, friendly, seeing what kind of, what my interests were outside of the office. But you know that squicky feeling that you get in your stomach when you sense that someone is thinking of you as more than just a potential good employee? That's so awful. Yeah, my, my stomach got squicky. So, I mean, and, and that's, that's the factor too. It's that line where you, you feel that distinct shift from being a human person with a brain to being a sexual object who might also, you know, happen to, to be decent in the workplace. Yeah. I mean, there is an invisible sort of line that's very hazy. I can an invisible thing also be hazy. I'm going to say in this case it can. Yes. In that Cosmo survey, 16% of women said that they had not been sexually harassed, but those same women said they had experienced sexually explicit or sexist remarks. So while there might be some misunderstanding on the guy's part of like, no, I didn't mean for that to be harassing or, or crude. It seems like on the women's side, too, there is a little bit of a misunderstanding of like, no, no, no. When he says something like sexist or derogatory or sexually explicit, like that that's sexual harassment. Yeah. And I wonder, too, because, you know, the stats in this Cosmo survey, which probably not the most scientific survey in the world, but nonetheless telling. I wonder, since it was so commonly reported by the women who were taking this survey, who were younger mm-hmm. than the numbers that ABC News reported on, which was 24 percent of women. I wonder if that points to sort of the the target demographic for mm-hmm. uh, sexual harassment. I mean, in that Cosmos survey, it did find that a bulk of the women who reported it were between or essentially like in their 20s. I don't have the exact ages. 
And it might also speak to our generational awareness Mm -hmm. of what is and isn't okay. But if we look at the specific industries where it tends to happen the most, it really echoes some of our past podcasts. So women working in food service, hospitality, retail, STEM fields, arts and entertainment, and legal fields, that was a curveball to me, uh, reported the most sexual harassment. I mean, in food service, that has been corroborated by other research as well. Yeah, I guess I was surprised. The one that surprised me was not legal fields, but was arts and entertainment. Because these are either male-dominated fields like STEM or legal or things like food service and retail where you are sort of open to abuse from customers, not to mention managers. Um, yeah, I was just trying to figure out what it would be in arts and entertainment. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's the the client aspect as well. Mm, yeah. um, I mean, and if you are thinking about like traditional arts, you have to deal with moneyed buyers mm. um, and people critiquing your work. I mean, your oh, your sure. work is for sale. Yeah, I guess actresses going on auditions, maybe. Sure. Sure. I bet it happens. Um, but they found in this survey, 75 percent of the reported harassers were male coworkers mm. and 10 percent were female coworkers. Um, and P.S. So Cosmo has certainly changed its tune from founder Helen Gurley Brown's advice in her 1964 bestseller, Sex and the Office, in which she wrote, and I must quote, <laughs> a married man usually likes attractive, approving females around whom he may or may not think of as sex objects. You'll never get me to say this is wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, horrifying. Yeah. Oh, oh, Helen G. This. OK, so like I now begrudgingly acknowledge that Cosmo does add to the feminist discourse online. Oh, why begrudgingly? Because I hated it for so long. Sure. I grew up occasionally getting a Cosmo or buying a Cosmo, and it was all horrifying. No magazine ever made me feel worse about myself than Cosmopolitan magazine. It's all about sex, and it's all, like, stupid sex tips, and it's all about pleasing your man. Finding his moan zone. And I'm like, oh, my God, get over yourself. Like, what about women? Like, can we have something that isn't, like, about, like, that you need this sexy bod to be successful? So, honestly, it's only <laughs> about in the past year that I've, like, come to terms with Cosmo being a little more legit in contributing articles to I will feminist co- conversations. I'll go on the record and say fully legit. They had brought on a new editor, like whole new guidelines. People like Jill Filipovic write for them now. I mean, it's a it's a good source, I will yeah, say. But it wasn't for the longest time. And this whole little anecdote here with Helen Gurley Brown, I'm like, yep. But how nice to see that magazines can evolve Toward feminism, yes, you know, in, a, in a positive kind well, of yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that with Marie Claire. I feel like, and and maybe L too. Every once in a oh, while, oh, definitely L. Yeah. yeah, especially online. And oh, how I wish that today's Cosmo was the Cosmo that I read oh, no when kidding. I was in high school. Yikes! Um, but back to <laughs> sexual harassment. It's so, so, so common, especially in food service. And this really echoes the episode that we did on uh, waitressing. And But this goes, though, for men and women both. And especially research has found 
when they're in jobs that aren't paid the minimum wage, when you make the like, what is it, like two fourteen an hour and then the rest are your tips. Mm-hmm. Sexual harassment runs rife. And Time Magazine reported on a 2014 Restaurant Opportunities Center United survey of 688 restaurant employees across the U.S., which found 66% of women and more than 50% of men reported sexual harassment by managers and even more Mm -hmm. from customers. Just another reason that the United States' tipping system sucks because you have to just kind of take it. These You're depending on these customers, these abusive customers, for your livelihood to, to supplement your terrible, terrible hourly wage that you earn from your restaurant. And so, I mean, it's bad enough being sexually harassed by your manager. I mean, like, that's awful. But then to have to basically try to earn money from people who are actively harassing you sounds traumatic. And this also crystallizes too, Caroline, the power dynamic at the core of all of this, because as the history we're about to talk about really shows the wider the disparity between, you know, the power of the harasser and the person being harassed, like the likelier and the more pervasive it tends to be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this information is coming from the fantastic resource Directions in Sexual Harassment Law. Uh, Reva B. Siegel wrote the introduction, and it is dense with information about the history of sexual harassment, the legal history specifically of sexual harassment. And in this country, if we look back to slavery, I mean, what better way to illustrate deeply ingrained power dynamics with a huge distance between the harasser and the harassed. Yeah. So um, in Harriet Jacobs's 1861 autobiography, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, she wrote how her slave owners, quote, began to whisper foul words in her ear when she was 15. And of course, antebellum rape laws did not protect enslaved women whatsoever, But even after the Emancipation Proclamation, their assumed hypersexuality, women of colors assumed hypersexuality, often robbed them of justice. And we go into more detail in this on our uh, two-parter on the history of rape and rape culture, which I highly recommend you also listen to. But yeah, I mean, the it it's so grim when it comes to slavery, because like you said, I mean, they're the women had no autonomy whatsoever and the and the more economic power that other person has over the victim the likelier this is to happen yeah and although the context and extent of the abuse is certainly different outside the shackles of slavery Women employed as domestic workers in manufacturing jobs and performing secretarial work also encountered it regularly. Basically, if you left the home, you were fair game. You were considered like almost a woman of ill repute for mixing with men in the workplace. So as we get to the 1850s, as the women's rights movement starts gathering steam, its organizers begin drawing these links between women's limited job prospects and reduced wages that made them economically dependent on men, whether in the workplace or at home. 
And that dependency, they argued, normalized coercion. And this is something that Reva B. Siegel and Catherine McKinnon also emphasize in directions in sexual harassment law, how it is power, but it's also about money and the socioeconomics tied up in all of this. Yeah, there's one particular story that went a long way towards recognizing those dynamics. So in 1868, you have this woman, uh, Hester Vaughn. She's a domestic servant. She gets impregnated by her employer. She's fired as a result, and she's later found destitute, her baby having died, and she ends up being convicted of infanticide. Well... She's facing a death penalty conviction and a couple of suffragists that you may have heard of, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and a few others catch wind of this. And they're basically like, this is insane. Are you serious? Like all of this stuff was done to her. She's a victim of circumstance in like the worst way. They basically managed to gather enough attention for Vaughn's case that they convinced the Pennsylvania governor to pardon her. Yeah. And they use this as a platform to campaign for suffrage, um, women on juries, uh, all of these issues that were tied up with Hester Vaughn's case. Um, but also, one name you've probably heard of is Little Women author Louisa May Alcott. In 1874, she wrote a newspaper essay about her sexual harassment experience from a female employer's brother. This woman had hired her to essentially be her lady's companion for a month or so, and her brother got real smarmy and kept inviting her into his study, which in 1874, (laughs) that was a direct come on. Yeah. And she resisted. And you know what he did? He was like, okay, you're not going to come into my study, both literally and figuratively, Louisa May Alcott, and I'm going to have you doing hard labor out in the yard yeah, he, he tried to, and this is such a, like a familiar refrain. He tried to bargain with her to lessen her chores. Oh, your life could be so much easier if you just come into my study. Uh, and then when she wouldn't, yeah, he, he added to her burden even more. But I love her story about basically telling him to back the F off. She like waved something at him. I don't know if it was like a poker from the fireplace or a feather duster or what, but that woman was not taking any guff. Well, and we even see around the turn of the century um, in this book, Women Wage Workers, authored by Helen Campbell. Even back then, they're calling attention to these problems of sexual harassment for, like you said, Caroline, women making money outside the home. Upton Sinclair in 1905's The Jungle also talks about it in the context of domestic workers, um, women in manufacturing and factory jobs even going so far as to compare it to slavery conditions. Particularly if they were poor and foreign. And in her 1887 book, Campbell described the sexual extortion of garment and factory workers and went on to say that household service has become synonymous with the worst degradation that comes to woman. So not so great to leave the house, I guess. Yeah. Uh, P.S. Sexual harassment is... Nothing new. I mean, and that also, that quote right there goes so much to show how class could only make you more vulnerable to it. And in a callback to our International Women's Day episode, which focused a lot on women factory workers, which included a lot of um, immigrant women going on strike, 
These low-wage workers in the 19th century were often looked down on as immoral for working alongside men and, in the wording of the day, giving in to sexual advances. So it was the onus was on these women to maintain their purity. Talk about some victim blaming 101. Yeah, like, oh, you've made the mistake to enter the workplace. Like, yeah. this is just natural. And, and how could we ever fix it? Which is a legal refrain that we will see come back in the 70s and 80s. Like, I, I it's it boggles the mind. I can barely speak because it boggles the mind. Well, and in our International Women's Day episode, we talked about how uh, snobby gentlemen of the day looked down on factory women for being immoral. And I was puzzled by that at the time. But, oh, this now makes sense, because even working alongside men was sketchy to them because of the risk of sexual harassment, but, which, of course, would have been the women's fault for being there in the first place. I, uh, it was the men putting the women at risk and then the men blaming the women for being at risk. I know, Caroline. I just, you preach into the conger choir. I just want to throw my headphones off and go run away. So Alice Kessler Harris, who was a labor women's labor historian over at Hofstra, told the New York Times... How nobody talked in terms of sexual harassment back then, of course, because the term had not been invented. She said, quote, the issue was whether it was immoral for young girls to be working alongside men and subjecting themselves to the natural licentiousness of the workplace. And so the argument a lot of times, Kessler Harris says, was that, you know what, the solution is to take women out of the workplace. They're safer at home. Yeah, I mean, in 1914, there was a report from the Commission on Industrial Relations that cited a glass factory that was so ridden with sexual harassment that all of the younger female employees were replaced with older women. So rather rather than nipping the sexual harassment in the bud, they're just like, fine, we'll take away all the spring chickens. Yeah, rather than firing the men and still bring in those older women... (laughs) Nope, just fire fire the young women who are too tempting. Hashtag distractingly sexy. Um, that same 1914 report also noted how female department store clerks, which this is, you know, a new industry that's uh, bubbling up at the time. Those clerks endured sexual harassment from and this is a quote from that report. Buyers, managers and floor walkers who take advantage of girls working under them. We know of cases of girls who have got to submit to buyers if they want to hold their positions again and again and again. It's power. It's money. It's socioeconomics. Oh, well, so how do you how were you supposed to if you weren't Louisa May Alcott with the weaponized feather duster waving it at that guy with a study? Like, what were you supposed to do? I mean, you had very little recourse at the time because, of course, I mean, we didn't even have language to describe it. There were no laws really to protect you unless I mean, there were rape laws. But as we'll talk about in a second, like the the bar was so high. And Mm -hmm. even if you simply accused someone of sexually harassing you, you were putting your reputation and your marriage prospects at risk because that would mean that you're already a tainted woman. (laughs) Get out of here. And. If you are a woman of color, an immigrant, or 
even just like a, a white domestic employee, well, too bad, so sad, because you've already been hypersexualized and stereotyped as promiscuous anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just just hope that you're a rich white woman. Then you might have, you know, a little bit of a legal leg to stand on. And speaking of which, the rape laws at the time required that women prove they exerted, quote, utmost resistance to the harassment or assault. Otherwise, you must have been consenting. Yeah. And I mean, that goes back to even earlier, quote unquote, rape laws, where you literally, as the woman, were expected to run through the town screaming. And if nobody heard you screaming, they were like, oh, well, you're probably lying. Yeah. She's just making it up. Yeah. And so author Reva B. Siegel and we've cited now a few times, underscores how those most invested in strengthening those anti-rape laws were often the most disenfranchised, whose only effective option so often was to begin organizing just as they had done to protest unfair wages and working conditions. They, they had to band together because, I mean, the law wasn't going to protect them. Exactly. And because this dynamic obviously continues through the 70s, 80s, 90s, Maybe you could argue today it kind of takes people with privilege ceding some of that privilege so that other people can be safe at work. It's very easy from a privileged position, whatever that position is, to just be like, oh, this isn't really that big of a deal. And this was especially true back then. Yeah. So what do you, what do you mean, though, by Seeding privilege. What form did that take? Well, essentially seeding the privilege to A, not see it or recognize it and B, give up your actual harassing behavior. Oh, so you're saying the men in the office. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we've already established that sexual harassment is more severe in areas where women are either new or and or they're in a male dominated field. So by the time World War One ends, women had started really becoming commonplace in the office and their clerical jobs increased 140 percent during the 1910s. And so as a result, you have all of these newspapers, magazines and employment guides being packed with advice for young women on how a proper office girl should behave and basically just taking for granted that, like, yeah, your your boss is going to make a pass at you. Yeah. And, and this info is coming from the book Sex in the Office, A History of Gender, Power and Desire by Julie Burbitsky, which I highly recommend you checking out. Um, Burbitsky writes about how office guides for women in the 1930s and 40s, which were extremely popular, typically encouraged women to be pleasing to the eye. Because men like to be surrounded by pretty women, duh. But don't be overtly sexy. You know, be pretty but not too pretty. And while bosses would certainly make passes at the prettiest ones, because, I mean, of course, they're just they're just dudes, it was all innocent masculine admiration and, and kind of a, an office tradition of sorts. Yeah, and, and like Kristen said, they were popular. You had one called Manners and Business by Elizabeth Gregg McGibbons that was reprinted 14 times between 1936 and 1946. And it also acknowledged that, hey, sex in the office happens. Yeah, and if we go back to Cosmopolitan founder Helen Gurley Brown and her questionable oh, good. advice, she writes in her bestsellers about when she was a secretary, games of scuttle. And scuttle 
is when bosses would pick a secretary to chase around until they caught her and removed her underwear. <laughs> I have so many words and then none at all. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this reading this just reminded me of episodes of Mad Men and also watching The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, I just don't. I I don't understand. Um, You also had Dale Carnegie's executive secretary, Marilyn Burke, who wrote a guide in 1959 warning against curvaceous women and low necklines that have a tendency to distract. Sultry pouts, swinging hips, and lingering caresses of well-manicured fingers were off-limits because they capitalized on male weakness. Those poor men being preyed upon by women. Well, we hear about this. uh, We hear this echoed, I think, most prominently these days in school dress codes. It sounds a lot like that, where girls with larger busts and larger butts are often the most penalized because they have the most, quote, distracting bodies um, and all of it being framed in a term of in terms of men just not being able to help themselves. Boys can't help but look and they'll be distracted. Hulk smash. Yes. Hulk smash. Hulk smash. Well, we're about to get to some Hulk smashing because Caroline, (laughs) the second wave is coming. Oh, thank God. And first we have the civil rights movement. And as a result, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act is passed and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act outlaws employment discrimination on the basis of sex and a lot of other factors. But that on the basis of sex is a crucially important phrase. But here's the thing. At that time, sexual harassment was predominantly viewed as a personal matter that just happened to take place in the office. It's like, Ugh. oh, I mean, like this guy can have a crush on you anywhere. He can be you know, inappropriately touching you anywhere. But he just happens to see you every day at the office. So, of course, that's where it will take place. It's just a personal issue. That's such crap. And that was like entrenched in our legal approaches to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because keep in mind, too, at this time, it was only men making the laws. (laughs) Jerks. Uh, Okay, so riding the crest of the second wave, we get Catherine McKinnon. And she was part of Lynn Farley's consciousness raising groups that we mentioned earlier in the 1970s, in the heyday of the women's movement. And the stories that she heard there at Cornell from secretaries about sexual harassment were eye-opening. And what especially got McKinnon's wheels a-turning was this woman, Carmita Wood, who had quit her job in a Cornell lab after her supervisor physically and verbally harassed her to the point she began developing stress-related physical ailments. And this is really common to hear from trauma victims in general and sexual harassment victims specifically that they develop physical and emotional symptoms like stomach pains, like anxiety attacks, like depression. So... Cornell had refused Wood's job transfer request and workers' comp because they said that her reasons for leaving, again, were personal. And so McKinnon realizes that these situations are happening because they're women. Light bulb, sexual harassment is sex discrimination. So in 1979, McKinnon, who at this time is still a student at Yale Law School, uses that but five-year-old term sexual harassment 
to write the groundbreaking Sexual Harassment of Working Women, A Case of Sex Discrimination. And this broke the whole thing wide open, legally speaking. And in that, McKinnon wrote, quote, Sexual harassment perpetuates the interlocked structure by which women have been kept sexually enthralled to men and at the bottom of the labor market. Two forces of American society converge. Men's control over women's sexuality and capital's control over employees' work lives. Mm-hmm. There you have it again. Power and money. Power and money. Yeah. And as Reva Siegel wrote, talking about this, she says that this arrangement, this power and money arrangement, has been institutionalized through marriage, prostitution, and, as we're seeing now, sexual harassment. And so along with her colleague Lynn Farley, McKinnon, pieces together how sexual harassment asserts a woman's sex role over her function as a worker. And again, it's really just about the communication of power. This, she said, is dominance eroticized. And it took about 10 years for McKinnon's legal argument to essentially make its way through various cases up to the Supreme Court. But first in 1980, we have the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission issuing its first sexual harassment guidelines, which we earlier defined And then 1986 is the big year. This is when the Supreme Court hands down its landmark decision based on McKinnon's legal theory in the case of Meritor Bank versus Vinson, in which a former bank employee alleged harassment by a branch manager. Um, And the Supreme Court determined sexual harassment to, in fact, be a form of sex discrimination, thus violating the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And Caroline, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I did not, before digging into this legal history, fully understand that sexual harassment is illegal because it is a civil rights violation. Yeah, I hadn't realized that either. And even though it took basically until 1991 with Anita Hill for sexual harassment to really come to the forefront, uh, socially speaking, I mean, think about how far we came in just a really short time from the idea that sexual harassment and like the sexualizing of women in the workplace is just natural. It's inevitable. And the law couldn't be expected to eradicate it. It's because we didn't have the language to identify mm-hmm. it. I mean, that, again, goes goes to that whole point of how putting language to something, identifying something, calling it out can initiate change. Mm-hmm. And change is still happening here and abroad, uh, around the same time that we're battling it here in the United States in 1984, Australia's Sex Discrimination Act made sexual harassment unlawful in the workplace. Uh, in 2002, so a bit of a leap, the uh, European Union recognized it as a form of discrimination. And then over a period between 2012 and 2014, You had a whole slew of countries, including Hong Kong, India, Israel, Japan, Singapore, South Korea and Vietnam, passing legislation that really clamped down on sexual harassment at work. But in the case of Vietnam, they didn't clearly define what sexual harassment was, nor are employers actually obligated to take any preventive measures. Yeah. And we should also note that with the that list of countries Many of them already had anti-sexual harassment laws in place, but this was really like going in and tightening those laws even more. And that's coming from uh, the Society for Human Resource Management. And Caroline, this whole episode 
is the preview to our next podcast, which is going to be all about Anita Hill and the circumstances surrounding that and talk again about power dynamics, gender, race, a lot tied up with it and the ripple effect that it would have because between her 1991 hearing before the Senate in 1998, sexual harassment claims filed with the EEOC more than doubled. And that has, again, a lot to do with women saying, oh, my gosh, that's happened to me. And this is what it's called. And it's a civil rights violation. Mm -hmm. So, listeners, now we turn to you. We want to know whether this is something you've experienced, how you handled it. And do you have any insights on eradicating sexual harassment from the workplace? Because this conversation definitely wasn't solutions oriented. No. Because we've only recently really figured we've, out how much of a problem it is. We've only just begun. Sorry. Your sexual harassment anthem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, uh, we hope to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Kate. Uh, she says, I just started listening to your podcast and I'm on a serious Stuff Mom Never Told You Crunch Fest. I've enjoyed more than I can list, but I wanted to express how much I appreciated your episode on disability and desexualization. My father is a quadriplegic, and since I was a child, people have asked me whether I was adopted or how my parents conceived me. My two siblings and I were conceived the old-fashioned way, and it astounds me that even mere acquaintances feel it's okay to ask me how my parents have sex and often comment on how remarkable of a woman my mother must be to have married someone in a wheelchair. Having a father in a chair not only made me aware of our world's inaccessibility and attitude towards disability, but also of the miseducation of the realities and needs of the disabled. Even those are on a spectrum for which two human beings, able-bodied or not, have the same needs. As with many disabilities and illnesses, the social stigma and preconceptions attached to them are often the greatest hurdles people have to face. I hope as a society we can continue to broaden the conversation on disabled realities, needs, and rights so that someday there will be access for everyone to enjoy their sex life in the same way much of the able-bodied community has for centuries, freely and privately. Let it be noted, my mother is indeed a remarkable woman and would still be regardless of her choice of husband. My father is a legend as well, by the way. Heck, maybe that's why they married each other. Well, thank you, Kate. Well, I've got a letter here from Jacqueline also about our sexuality and disabilities podcast. And she writes, I'm so happy that you guys brought up the lack of sex ed that people with disabilities get in school. I'm a 25-year-old living in Canada, and the bone disorder I was born with has left me standing only 4'4", and while I consider myself able-bodied, thanks to my amazing parents, my high school did not. I wasn't allowed to take gym in grade 9, where you get the sex ed that isn't about getting your period. This left me really clueless about sex until I started university. Luckily, we live in the internet age, and I was able to flesh out my knowledge from feminist sources. I consider myself pretty sex-positive now, but it's a product of my own research. I appreciate you are addressing this issue. If people with even mild disabilities don't know about sex themselves, how are we supposed to educate the able-bodied people that we want to have sex with? 
Well, thank you, Jacqueline, for your letter. And thanks to everybody else who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about the legal history of sexual harassment, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.